Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hardcore Finance Show. And today, I'm very excited to welcome back David Blatt. Uh, David Blatt's episode last time, uh, we talked with Shimon a lot about uh, real estate. Uh, and obviously, we'll give you David's back on in a second. Uh, but that was one of, the, one of the best episodes that we've had. So I'm really excited to bring David back today because, well, the market is in a bit of a disarray. And real estate is the core of the American kind of family of the American dream, if you will, and it's about to fall potentially. And so really quickly before I dive in, because I'm super, David, I'm super excited to have you and talk to you. Uh, but David Blatt is the CEO of Capstack Partners. Uh, they're an asset manager offering clients in real estate investment advice, uh, capital solutions. He's also a founder and CEO of Bextel, the first lender to lender marketplace to syndicate buy and sell real estate loans. So today's going to be real estate heavy debt paper heavy welcome to the show thank you thanks for having me back all right so first question we're gonna before it was softballing with you but now we're gonna we're gonna hit it right out of the gate i love it are we in a recession uh yes absolutely (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're we're certainly in a recession i mean it's just uh you know you can't look around and suggest otherwise Right. So, I mean, I think, you know, every every headline is more about like soft landing versus this just precipitous drop that is trying to be managed. No one's talking about like, you know, pushback, you know, to the upside, at least in the present. So a hundred percent, you know, uh, listen, the other thing is this, right? Let, let's just think about where we came from you know, from the great reopening perspective and, you know, just how hot the economy was in that bounce back, you know, coupled by the fact that it was, you know, super juiced by a lot of the stimulus that was being um, injected into the market in the form of just plentiful money, you know, so to sort of have this snapback tied to cost of capital in the most fundamental sense, inflationary aspects to it, um, it, it makes sense uh, on at least an economic level. No one appreciates it when you got to go buy something at the store, um, you know. But academically, anyway, it just seems like it would be the natural progression, cyclically speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So look. So I'm I'm super interested to to um, this is going to be a, a you know you're going to teach Alex about all about real estate real estate paper because. So look, I I understand enough. Let's just build the the background for the audience. But I'd love to go deep with you. When yields increase, when uh, the Fed Federal Reserve increases interest rates, obviously it becomes more costly to borrow. So so people's payments, there's the commercial and retail side, uh, but people's payments increase. And so when you're paying double or sixty or seventy percent effectively more, you know, for your mortgage payment for the same property. Um, it becomes very hard to go and buy. And we went from 0% rates or actually 25% 25 bit uh, overnight rate to what, I forgot what it is now, three, three and a half yeah. or some, something along those lines. And uh, one of the mortgage rates now are close to 7%. That's right. right? And went, went from like three and a half, 3.25 to seven. So it's, it's a major, major increase. And typically, again, we'll go deeper, but just to build the base, the way, mortgage payments are structured as, you know, you're paying a lot of interest up front. You're paying off your principal to later and uh, of a typical 30-year mortgage. What are you seeing 
um, on the ground? Are you, you know, what's talk to us a little bit about the, do you, are you seeing a slowdown? What's actually happening? Uh, so I, I think, uh, you know, when you're talking about, you know, you have a lot of constituents that make up uh, a real estate trade. Uh, and so when you start at the uh, debt end, which is most of the capitalization, right there, you, you know, you're obviously seeing higher rates uh, that exist today. And so uh, lenders who are active in real estate, whether they be a traditional bank or a private lender or a debt fund, immediately um, you have to recalculate and recalibrate to the cost of capital associated with um, the trade, right? So right away, that is having, I would say, the most acute and immediate impact in the sense that you're going to have to reassess, re-underwrite, lend less to cover, right? So if you're looking at the investment property side of it, right, commercial assets, you have to consider okay, well, if my debt service is going to run X dollars per month now, I need to have a certain amount of rent to cover that. Um, and so that means I'm going to have to lend less, right? So now you've got less debt dollars on the table for a given real estate trade, which either gets filled in with equity on the presumption that the purchaser just absolutely is bullish on the you know asset that they're buying, or more realistically, uh, you're going to see uh, a no trade scenario because of the fact that you know you're not able to fully capitalize the deal at the price point where you know it may have been or remains today um, simply by virtue of the fact that you know sellers may be in either a wait and see approach or just simply you know in a denial approach uh, mm -hmm. to a particular trade saying well my asset was worth X yesterday you know, it's worth that today just simply because of that endowment effect. I own it, so therefore it still remains there. You know, so what, what you're really seeing is more a slowdown in activity because, you know, you got to hit that bid ask in order to actually have trade activity with respect to any real estate deals, commercial or residential, right? So when you have one side that's still playing psychological catch-up to the realities of the market in that, you know, money costs more money. Therefore, the asset is, you know, it's got to be repriced down uh, unless, you know, again, the buyer comes in and fills in with their own cash that gap. Um, you know, you just have, like, call it the, you know, right now, and certainly I would say probably over the next couple of cycles, you know, just the slowdown in activity before you know, sellers, owners, you know, come to uh, the new reality of, well, you know, this is where things are as a function, you know, firstly of interest rate, and then not even factoring in what the economic, you know, circumstances may be macro or localized. Yeah, there's a lot of threads I want to pull on that. But you mentioned, you know, next couple of cycles, how many cycles do you think, and, and, you know, your definition of a cycle, if you could estimate your best guess, until we see some sort of housing bottom and, and well actually i should say do you think prices will fall so i i do think prices are going to come down uh it's just you know i, I think that you have too many pressures on pricing so you know you're touching on housing so let's just talk about that specifically um 
you know, particularly, you know, you've had such a hot housing market, which really was driven by kind of like the tailwind end of a lot of the fundamental aspects of things. You know, the costs of things were less. Um, you had a supply constraint situation that really was a tail from, you know, talking like, you know, the last recession, you know, when the whole housing market tanked and everybody stopped building, you know, so people tend to forget, you know, we're going like almost on 15 years back, you know, but that consequence and just sort of that uh, effect uh, of the pullback on development caused this acceleration of trying to just satisfy um, the housing need, which never actually got there. Um, and then layering in that the home buyer started to compete with some of the bigger institutions who were doing the single family rental, which was an entirely new industry born out of that very same recession. Um, you know, so you had much more bullish sentiment, you know, the cost to build, the cost of land, um, everything was in reach. Um, and then you also had the cost of debt being as cheap as it's been for the last number of years, such that buyers could make sense of the higher pricing uh, based on the fact that they could borrow at such low rates. You know, now you reverse that. You've got like massive supply constraints on the development side. Um, you've got labor shortages. You know, land is less plentiful because so much of it was like snatched up over the last few years. You know, and then you layer in the cost of the debt that we touched on already, you know, and that just creates a tremendous amount of pressure to the downside, um, you know, but at the same time, you're not, you're still not solving, you know, long term uh, for the fact that there's still a tremendous housing need, um, you know, whereas before you were driving a lot of prospective home buyers um, into the renter category because they couldn't get their hands on stuff, you know, now they can't get their hands on stuff simply because they can't uh, afford, you know, the down payment's going to have to be greater or, you know, something needs to adjust again to make it much more within reach. And I think also buyers just psychologically have this sentiment simply that things should be cheaper by virtue of the fact that, you know, everything else is, mm -hmm. you know, so negative, you know, and that, that ends up influencing at least buying activity, which then translates into pricing. So I do think that you're going to see that downward pressure materialize, you know, call it in the next, you know, couple of cycles. As to like the crystal ball, when does this bottom out? Well, you know, the good thing is, is if I'm right, I'm going to be like, you're going to invite me back on to the show. And if I'm Caps wrong, like partners. That's yeah. right. That's right. If I'm wrong, no one's going to remember. So, uh, you know, this is what an easy one that I'll feel. You know, look, I, I'll tell you this. I, I, I don't um, think that uh, you have the kind of crisis era issues, you know, similar to what impacted housing and real estate um, through the Great Recession uh, today, right? You have elements that are certainly creating that uh, recessionary environment, you know, and so typically those things tend to linger, you know, for, you know, call it, you know, four quarters, six quarters, you know, so I think next year is probably going to suck, you know, from that standpoint, um, you know, and my hope and prediction would be that we'd start to see a slow pickup coming back in, you know, the following, uh, you know, call it 24.
So yeah, so it's interesting. So you're saying sometime in 23, there's I, I, even a couple of threads from here. Let me just ask you really quickly. You mentioned two things. You said you know reduce supply, right? But also buyers and reduce demand. So what's going to outweigh what? If it's high demand, reduce supply, prices go up. Reduce supply, same demand, prices go down. Reduce supply, reduce demand. That's like an unknown, right? And sure. we haven't even disaggregated the nation. We're just talking on average. Um, because I'm looking at the indices and, and you're looking at like home builders indices and they're, they're falling as well. So people aren't, I mean, it wasn't uh, yesterday, this today we're recording, it's Thursday the 20th. The show will come out in a few days after this. But I think yesterday or the day before they came out with the indices and um, uh, uh, they're not great. They're falling and they're falling pretty precipitously in terms of home builders. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so if the supply of homes it, it drops and the demand is dropping, are we just going to come to a stalled market? So I think, you know, it's, it's moving towards a stalled market in the near term, right? Part of it is a, a price discovery process that everyone is just internalizing. You know, home builders are dealing with the pressures of the cost to build with, do I have a buyer on the other side like I did before? Um, so look, I think, you know, longer term, I think we're going to come out the other side where the market starts to show uh, a recovery and and then picks up steam again. Uh, and then you're going to be faced with that same supply constraint problem. That's going to drive pricing right now, though, in the near term, you know, I don't think that that supply constraint is going to necessarily work to the benefit of pricing per se. Um, because I think buyers, why? what's that? Well, yeah, why, why? I'm really curious to why. Well, because I think uh, if, if the cost to borrow uh, is going to continue to trend upward um, and remain higher, uh, buyers are going to uh, expect uh, to be able to pay less in order to make the numbers make sense, right? And granted, look, you know, the, the purchase of a home is a very localized personal decision, right? And so, you know, there'll be kind of like room within that, you know, where people are willing to stretch and whatever. But, you know, at the end of the day, you have buyers that have a certain nut with respect to what that deposit looks like. The rest has to be filled in with debt. They're only going to get so much debt based on where the rates are. And therein lies your purchase price, at least, or your buying power. And so if sellers are going to want to move things, they're going to need to adjust to that. And I say that on a macro, right? Because your counter as a seller is like, well, I'll just wait for the buyer that has a bigger deposit. Okay. But that's not a volume trade. And when you're a home builder, you're looking to move volume. You know, so to that end, if your exit is a home buyer, you're going to have to calibrate to that. So the numbers will need to pencil. You know, either that or you're just going to have to hang on to inventory. And if you're hanging on to inventory, now you're putting pressure on the supply side of that. And you have carrying costs. Yeah. You have that as well. Yeah. So do you expect, again, no crystal balls here. We're not going to hold you to this. Just uh, order of magnitude, if you will. I know I'm going to keep pushing on this. You know, what's what downside are we looking at? next year when we're talking about real estate prices from today and they're already starting to fall in different areas uh, of the country uh, for sure 
Um, and then I want to ask you about my area. My area is really weird. I live in the D.C. area, and it's just like it seems like nothing phases us. The great, great financial crisis, 07, 08. Everybody was foreclosing, and D.C. was like, doo, 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 you know, <laughs> hey guys, you know, what, what's happening? It's such a weird uh, government-tied kind of area. But what are we looking at more or less from a, from a fall perspective? Um, like how much more downside is there in housing prices? Well, look, I, I think, uh, you know, until we get a signal from the Fed, you know, that they're going to take the foot off the gas or even slow down on rate increases, um, you're just going to see continued pressure to the downside. Um, and I think what you're also going to do is you're, you're sidelining a lot of prospective buyers, right? So it's not just a function of the cost of the debt increasing for let's say a home buyer um it's that those home buyers or there's there's going to be a segment of those prospects that are going to be sidelining to just wait until rates stabilize enough for them to be able to think about you know where they are and going to be. So that influences decisions as well. And look, certainly if we're going to translate that to the investment side, you know, where you're looking at uh, you know, real estate investors on the buy side, that's absolutely the case. You know, I, I would say that, you know, we're talking, let's say here is point zero and then go forward, but let's consider how many um, investor developers bought into assets underwriting the ability to refinance at a certain value and a certain interest rate um, such that, uh, you know, in, in the best case scenario, they got a cash out on that refinance because they added value in some way, which is a very typical business plan. Um, but certainly being able to bring their carrying costs down and instead they're coming into a market environment where that's completely flipped, you know, such that um, not only is it just simply that, you know, they're going to have a higher carry, but the lender that's supposed to be the takeout on that refinance is now advancing fewer dollars because that very same cash flow isn't sufficient to cover the debt at the levels that the lender needs. So you're creating a huge population of borrowers that are coming up on loan maturities that are going to have to solve that with equity if they want to hold on to the asset or by selling where you know one you got to solve for a buyer that's going to be interested to jump into the deal that you have um, where you may be competing with a lot of guys that are going to be dumping as well who mm -hmm. those buyers also have the same financing quandary to solve that you just went through. So it still has to pencil for them, you know? So, you know, you're, you're in a tough spot and, and you may end up selling out sufficient to pay your debt, but you might end up taking a haircut on the equity you ended up putting in, even if you performed well as an operator or developer of that asset, you know, where you took it from point A to point B and actually created value, but the market turned on you. So the value is now like less than where you started potentially, you know, so I see that materializing and those distress type situations materializing, you know, at least in the next few quarters. That's very interesting. You talked about uh, a lot of things here and, and 
it seems like it's an interesting perspective. There are many views about when the Fed is going to start pivoting. Uh, some views are thinking, okay, well, look, we're going to get to like a 4.5% terminal rate, probably fairly close, you know, maybe 100 basis points away from something when they stop or break the system. So let's say they stop around the turn of the year, right? Around, or they pause at least at December or January. That's sooner than your more or less uh, prediction that, you know, sometime in 2023 is going to be, is going to be tough, which implies some sort of overhang, right? And a lot of things that I've read uh, about real estate is that there's probably a three to six month lag, or maybe a six month lag between this interesting um, phenomenon where consumers now are still thinking, okay, well, the rates are rising. They might go up later, so I might as well get out of my house, you know, or, or buy now so I can lock in this high rate, but it's going to not be as high uh, later. So is there some sort of overhang, like a wily Coyote moment where you realize you're running, but there's no longer a ground underneath you? You're kind of over the cliff and then, you know, and then you fall. You know, is it going to be like, hey, you know, end of Q1, beginning of Q2 of next year when the market really start drying up of, of deal makers? Well, I, I you know, the, so let's start with the, the, the premise of the Fed actually, you know, throttling back or even stopping. Pivot, pivot. Right, right. This is what we're going I mean, for. you know, like the market, the public markets obviously, you know, are ready for this. Um, you know, whether the economy is, you know, and that's obviously the Fed's call to make. But, you know, anytime there's a signal or a rumor, like you could see the market reacting to that. So we know where the public markets are going to go uh, once the Fed actually starts to signal like, OK, this is enough. Um, yeah, but real estate, you know, and I say this regularly, it's a big, fat, slow moving fixed asset. Um, and so whatever is happening you know, in the capital markets, in the public markets, you have this lag time associated with how real estate processes um, those very same uh, consequences. So even if you start to see, you know, the capital markets turning around and again, the public markets reacting in real time because of its efficiency, um, it, it's going to take, uh, you, you definitely have uh, the overhang that you mentioned uh, associated with that, um, that I think is going to take definitely some time uh, to process, you know, and, and and the funny thing is, is it's not like a, a quarter, two quarters thing, you know, you're dealing with so many elements, you're dealing with the psychological element of the buyers and sellers, you know, and, and, and where that like bid ask strike is on pricing, right, just by virtue of the fact that, you know, buyers, um, both genuinely and opportunistically, take the position that, you know, money costs more money now, therefore pricing should reflect that, you know, and sellers saying, but my asset's amazing, you know, it's worth more than what I even own it, you know, you know I bought it at or, you know, where, uh, you know, the market even was when it was hot. So, you know, you're going to have that lag time coupled with the fact that, you know, ultimately it comes down to, you know, capital access versus interest rates for the most part, you know, and that's, that's, that's the one thing that I think distinguishes um, this market cycle, um, you know, as recessionary as it is or will be versus, you know, the last one. The last one, you know, what really impacted 
uh, real estate, which also had like that, you know, call it lag time, you know, it was pretty precipitous and it obviously, you know, led the downturn, but you know, you didn't have capital availability, like period, right? Lenders and, and all the sources of debt capital just dried up partly because they just disappeared and they went like bust. But also a lot of them were just very skittish about entering back into the market. And that's really what created the whole debt fund um, world that now exists today and become much more institutionalized. But we don't have that issue right now. Lenders are being cautious. Lenders are being disciplined. You know, the government's got all these like capital ratio tests that they're implementing in real time. And so lenders are being, you know, maybe they're being a little more selective. Maybe they're not putting out as much, but the money is still there. So things are still moving along, right? And so as the, you know, rates calibrate, as maybe the inflationary environment calibrates, Capital and the capital sources will calibrate to that, but they're not going away. So I think, you know, that keeps the engine going, you know, so slow down and dead stop are like really two different things, you know, in two different, uh, I don't want to say crises because the first isn't a crisis per se, um, but the second one is, yeah. right? And I think that's really the distinction here that, you know, to pay attention to, because even if you look at, and I've looked at this historically. Okay, you go back and look at down cycles, you know, particularly as it relates to um, real estate, REIT pricing, um, you know, and then you cross-reference it with what the interest rate was at the time. And like the correlation was much more um, uh, tied to capital availability than what the interest rate was. You know, so in certain instances, you might have had an interest rate environment at five, at seven or eight, you know, at six or whatever it was. But if lenders were lending, then it wasn't necessarily like, you know, uh, as impactful as like when they completely pulled back and they were just out of the market. Yeah. So, oh, wow, I was going to go into commercial versus residential. But, but before we do that, when you say capital availability, right, how do we or what are some signs to look out for uh, if you're an investor and you're investing in real estate, whether directly or, you know, through paper, what are some signs to see specifically capital availability within the real estate market? Um, so look, the, the most um, transparent and um, readily available source is going to be your public market debt, right? So, you know, you're talking about agency debt like Fannie and Freddie, um, you're talking about looking at the CMBS and um, CLO markets, you know, that support uh, a lot of real estate lending, right? Because that's just public market uh, data is available. You can see it. You can see its trends. You can see also the delinquencies associated with that. So that's always the, the you know, the easiest gauge is like one form. Um, you can look at banking activity. Right. Regulated banks have a certain allocation to commercial real estate. Um, you know, so that's another form of really tracking, um, you know, the capital availability. Right. I mean, I and, and when I say that, obviously, I mean debt, particularly because that makes up most of the stack uh, in any real estate transaction. Um, so that's really what 
everybody is most sensitive to. It's a highly levered asset, right? So you want to really be tracking that mostly. Um, you know, so that th those are just like a couple of places to point to and really look at. You know, there there are a lot of these like market reports that are just like publicly available where you can mm -hmm. see like, okay, how much did the banks put out in commercial real estate this year or this quarter? How much did life companies, you know, life insurance companies do as well? You know, every player in the space, you know, and what, what have they done? Have they pulled back percentage wise? You know, that's really where I like to look just to see, you know, and granted some of it is opportunistic because we're going to jump in and try to pick up the slack where we see some good deals that are just, you know, baby with the bathwater situations. But you know, otherwise, it's also just good to keep your finger on the pulse on a macro level. So you mentioned mortgage-backed securities, MBS. How much of look? It was a, there was a buyer of last resort or first result was you know the, essentially the Fed they were just buying MBS up until about May this year, if I'm not mistaken. But I could be wrong in a month. Now that that buyer is out. Right. Obviously, it reduces the availability of money and cash in the systems, which was propping up real estate prices before. How big of a hit is that? And do you expect them to come back in after a certain point? So maybe I should clarify, there's going to be a pivot on interest rates from the Fed. Right. And there's probably going to be some sort of pivot of, you know, will the Fed actually go back and buy mortgage-backed securities? Do you think they would? Uh, and, and yes or no, regardless, how big of a, you know, of cash suck out of the system uh, is that is the Fed stopping buying MBSs? I, I think, look, it's always convenient, you know, to have the government picking up, um, you know, uh, MBS. Buy when, my house. Yeah. You know, <laughs> buy my house, fund my debt. You know, I mean, it absolutely is impactful. Um, you know, I think the Fed had, definitely did a good job of signaling when they were going to slow down and stop um, so that the market could prepare. Um, and I think they were doing it through a pretty hot time in the market that it could absorb that news and really just like you know, taking the training wheels back off, so to speak, um, you know, as to just how the whole engine was working. I, I don't necessarily foresee uh, the Fed jumping back in because you know, this isn't a crisis situation as much as it is a fundamental economic cycle that, again, you know, you could appreciate academically, you know, but, you know, sucks maybe in real life when it comes to like buying things, um, you know, but when it comes to them being out of the market, I, I don't necessarily know no. that you're um, seizing the market up per se, I think that you're just going to have a very traditional capitalist oriented, you know, supply demand dynamic where the uh, longstanding buyers and even new entrants may be commanding much higher yield on that product, which has that cascading effect of saying, okay, well, we've got to go out and originate higher interest loans to satisfy our end buyers. Um, mm -hmm. And the question then becomes, you know, are those uh, loans in line with the same rates that traditional banks charge? And, you know, as a, as a borrower, you can go shop around and see like which source makes the most sense for you. 
Um, but I don't think it gets to a point where like MBS goes out the window. I think you just have too many groups that really like that product um, yeah. that it's just going to continue along again. You know, there may be a repricing element associated with that. I mean, there certainly is. Um, does that continue? You know, that's, I think, uh, a question, you know, but I, I don't think it seizes up or I don't think it needs government intervention because I don't think it's a crisis. Yeah, so, so before I, this is, it's an interesting point, not a crisis, because the government started doing this during the great financial crisis. Um, and yeah, so look, they're, they're stopping now. We'll see if they go back in. There are other macro wins here, uh, whether we can sustain such high yields and, and government uh, debt in general, what's going to happen with them too, which the wider money supply. Um, but, I, but I do want to pivot to commercial versus residential before I do. I want to ask about my home, the DC area. So, <laughs> the the one I, I read, um, uh, what's uh, I, I'm going to look up uh, this guy on Twitter now, but um, it's uh, Michael Kantowitz, I think, uh, or Kantrowitz, Kantrowitz. He's um, I, I follow him a lot on on Twitter. He's the chief investment strategist of Piper Sandler. He's he's very good. He he basically has this thing. He's like. You know, uh, analysis of averages uh, leads to average analysis, and so we were always talking about on on kind of global terms. But the U.S. is a very patchy market, right? So I'll I'll leave the thunder to you, so to speak. But when you're looking at the U.S. overall, there are certain areas where real estate prices are much more susceptible to the ups and downs. Like in the great financial crisis, Vegas was pretty much, and, and COVID, Vegas was just, you know, abandoned, right? And, and Vegas suffers a lot from this. DC, on the other hand, doesn't. Do you see the same patterns? Do you see certain areas of the market that are um, more susceptible to, to a downfall and ones that are less susceptible to real estate prices falling? Um, so I think, uh, you know, you can segment that uh, certainly by geography. Um, and I think you could also segment that by, um, you know, whether you're talking about the like luxury end of the market versus, you know, just like your standard either house or condo um, for a traditional home buyer. Um, so I, I certainly think that um, the luxury end of the market across the board uh, is. Uh, certainly getting impacted right now, you know, which, you know, you can make an argument to say that um, it's the kind of asset class that uh, somebody who has um, just a ton of cash isn't necessarily going to be um, as rate sensitive, um, you know, but those, you know, that same cash pricing and the dollar swing associated with uh, the price tag on these uh, particular properties is significant. Um, and so you're starting already with a smaller population of buyers, uh, to begin mm -hmm. with. Um, and not only that, but it's just like, you really got to hit the bullseye, especially if you're like a home builder or someone who's like, you know, a renovator of like those types of homes, you know, it's gotta be in the right location, nothing funky about it. And, you know, things like that, uh, already create a small population of buyers that is your exit and source of profit such that when you hit you know, times like these, 
you know, it tends to even thin that out somewhat, you know, whether it be because of capability, interest, or just a wait and see kind of approach. You know, with respect to like, you know, geography, you know, your prime higher density markets, you know, already have this like out of whack, so to speak, supply demand dynamic to begin with. Um, I would say that that had, was like manifest in the, in the insane pricing that a lot of people were just being blown away by, um, you know, when the market was just on fire. Um, I, I think that uh, the slowdown is certainly impacting those markets, you know, so you talk about like, you know, New York, D.C., um, you know, but, you know, there's there's room for a pullback, you know. There's only so many people that can drop, you know, call it that one to three million dollar pricing. Like those people, you know, have capability yeah. and certainly, you know, have some money, um, you know, but the interest rate environment also impacts them, you know, in terms of what that carry looks like. And, you know, so I think that there's there's going to be some uh, some pullback there, you know, and then, you know, you also look at some of the maybe like high growth markets that really benefited um, from the last few years, you know, you talk about like Miami or a Nashville or an Austin, you know, and I think there, you know, the thing to also consider is just, you know, what's driving that in migration uh, into those markets, you know, and when you have things like industries that have been really driving a lot of why people are moving there. So Austin's got a very, you know, um, strong tech scene. Um, you know, Miami has just, you know, seen the benefit of, you know, everything related to how it kept, you know, business going through COVID, but you also have just like a lot of financial institutions moving that never stopped even after the great reopening, you know, you've got this growing tech scene, crypto, you know, and regardless of what each one of those industries may experience the fact is anyone that's migrating on a commercial um, basis to a given location is not thinking about the next call it even year or two as much as they're thinking you know long game um, just about where they're setting up and why they're setting up and so that brings with it um, people who are obviously going to be working in those firms and those industries, which translate into a housing need, right? That still needs to be satisfied. Now, you know, you can get into the whole, okay, are they renters? Are they buyers? You know, and I think certainly like you start to then maybe have somewhat of an effect of where we are on a macro level, having some influence there. Um, you know, but if you've got people coming in, like it's a good news story, right? And the vibe does not feel, you know, recessionary to a large extent. So maybe you'll have some people maybe hanging back just to see where the market goes, but they're doing that opportunistically, right? They're not like, it's not a doom and gloom analysis. It's like, oh, I'm just trying to market time right now on when I can jump in, you know, because I want to like plant a flag here. And like, this is where I'm going to set up, you know, my like base on a personal basis and, uh, you know, probably professionally as well. Yeah, this is that's an interesting point. So let me. Uh, w I want to ask you before before I let you go because your wealth of knowledge. 
commercial versus residential. We've been talking a lot in general and uh, anchoring on residential. Let's talk a little bit about commercial. Uh, one, we have a slowdown. But two, there are all these these tailwinds before, or actually headwinds, I guess, from a real estate perspective of COVID changed everything. People aren't going to go back to the office as, you know, in the way they used to. And they're going to work from home. At least it'll be a hybrid working environment. So a lot of companies are downsizing. Do you see that continuing? Is that still a true statement or is that something that was a fad and true for, you know, two years? So how how is the commercial market performing and affected by all of this? Uh, so, you know, interestingly, you know, retail is recovering much quicker than the office was. And I think it got more of the beatdown um, during pandemic than office did. Not that people weren't considering office at the time. It was just the higher profile um, asset class just because it's it's just by its nature. Um, you know, where now you're seeing like, you know, people getting out there and still shopping and still buying and, and people are signing up leases and retail's just been like kind of, you know, doing all right. And, and lenders are willing to hear out, you know, the prospect of financing uh, assets like that. Um, office, I think, uh, look, I think office continues to trend towards a recovery, but it's one of those situations where I think the call it, you know, uh, secular shift in, in office really has to do with how people work. Right. So that hybrid element of it, um, you know, but with all that said, um, you know, you're, you're reading about, uh, how there's just been, um, a just strong influx of people getting back to work after the summer, um, more and more people coming into the office. So maybe it's not five days a week, but they're there, um, more than they've ever been. And that seems to be a growing trend. Um, and I think it's, a combination of certainly the companies saying, okay, party's over, let's get back to work in terms of having presence. And I think people want that in their life um, and their routine as well. So, you know, going back to the asset class, you know, office is a catch-all, right? But the reality is, you know, where you're seeing a lot of the activity, you know, and there's always announcements of like, you know, big leases getting signed or big buildings getting leased up or, you know, things like that. It's the newer product, you know, the more recent developments, uh, the, the better locations, um, you know, so you look in New York at like Hudson Yards as an example, or like, you know, new developments in Wynwood in Miami as another example, you know, but just like new product, downtown locations, you know, those are really the hooks for a lot of the tenants that are signing up leases because there is a consideration as to getting people in, right? Like forcing people into some like crap location office is just, you're going to end up losing staff because it's just a downer to be in these like, you know, um, cookie cutter old school looking offices. And I think that, um, you know, one, there's going to be sort of a sorting out of which properties are going to survive. Um, and I think you're also going to see either the existing owners or new owners coming in and doing their very best to uh, 
revive these properties with some serious, serious upgrades um, just to make them viable uh, as an investment, you know, long term. Um, you know, and I think it's going to take time for sure. Uh, I think there's just going to be a lot of things that are just going to like die out and maybe be demoed, um, turned into other mm-hmm. things like apartment complexes or, you know, self-storage or whatever the better use is. You know, I think so a lot of that is going to certainly happen. Um, but, you know, you, you see that on the retail side, you know, you've got a whole like segment of dead malls, you know, where it's just like, you know, there's like crap tenants and like bad locations that, you know, just die out. But then, you know, in contrast, you've got like phenomenal like lifestyle centers that maybe just like either get built or got built right down the road and they're crushing it. Right. So it's not like there's an element of obsolescence to the entire asset class, right? It's just an evolution, if you will, related to those. And that's frankly how it should be. It's interesting you, what you just mentioned. It's, there's a couple of themes in there. One, retail is recovering better than uh, typical commercial office space. And I maybe I'm using the wrong terms when I say commercial, but retail stores versus uh, office space. But the second is that when we're thinking about, you know, academically, you said, look, from an economic perspective, the whole recession and uh, downturn makes a lot of sense. It also makes sense to get rid of the deadwood. And this is exactly what we just talked about. The the office space that was just there, that's not great. The malls that are deadwood malls. We have I have some around me that just have been kind of floundering for years and years and COVID brought them down and they've never reopened because they need high traffic, you know, high velocity, chic stores, things that, brings excitement um what what i'm, I'm gonna and i'm not holding into these numbers but i keep on asking about these numbers just from a high level just to create some context and magnitude what perspective of let's say commercial retail this mall space and then office space do you think is dead with so how much are we you know is it going to be a 10 percent haircut a 15 percent haircut is this even a way to uh, the right way to value it um, so yeah, I, I look, I, I think it's hard to point to the entire asset class and say it needs to be repriced to X. I think, uh, it's, it's much more of a, uh, sorting out of those assets that, um, warrant being valued versus the ones that just like, you, you know, to your comment are dead wood and need to go. Um, so I, I think that, uh, that's much more of the analysis at the moment. And look, I would say with retail, you know, that was happening way before, uh, the pandemic, um, and retail was trying to figure out what its next version needed to be. And, you know, so experiential, Mm. like became a huge, uh, component of that. And then of course, you know, unfortunately the pandemic, like, just affected that because nobody could experience anything. But then, you know, you look now and, you know, that element is, is absolutely still prevalent and, and back as a component uh, of retail. And, you know, you have the omni-channel element to it with integration related to technology, you know, whether it be how you're shopping or, you know, even bringing in some elements of, you know, crypto to the retail experience now, you know, and so just, kind of blending all of that together, you know, office, unfortunately, doesn't have that creative latitude, 
you know, and so there, I think you're really, you know, going to be bound by, you know, the vintage of the asset, meaning how old your property is, and you know, what kind of amenities you're able to either offer up or you're developing into newer assets. And, you know, if you're like, you know, in the very like classic sense, location, 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 are you in the right you know, area that even if you, you know, listen, so there's just some like crappy offices that are just going to always kill it because they are just yeah. like hundred percent in the right corner, you know, but I don't know how much people are willing to tolerate even that, you know, to some degree. So, you know, I think that's really what's going to happen. And, and look, I think, you know, you're asking a pricing question and a value question uh, on an overall. And I, I don't know that, um, you're going to necessarily see people saying, well, office is just too risky an asset class or, you know, it's going through changes. Therefore, we should adjust pricing down to reflect that reality. You know, in the end, investments are made based on, you know, the numbers. So the question really becomes, you know, how much occupancy can you get into a building and how much rent can you charge in that building? You know, and that's going to in turn provide you with some uh, implied value along with other inputs. And I think that's really going to be more of a driver than simply, you know, doing a catch all. Well, office sucks right now, so we're going to haircut the hell out of it. You know, it's more just a binary, very close look at, okay, you know, is this building class A with like phenomenal tenants, you know, with long-term leases and a good location or, you know, is it not? And do I investor or do I lender even want to put dollars into this on a, you know, go, no go basis? I, I think, I think, um, yeah, this is, we're going to see, this is kind of the macro environment of our, of our lives, so to speak, of our generation. And we're going to see some interesting as you said, there are a lot of various wins and degrees of freedom that are coming in and out um, in terms of what's going to happen to the market. And I know I keep on trying to push you on price and get you to uh, to 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 bite, so to speak. And then look, I, for me, the the overall movement and trajectory is interesting. But let me ask you this, because I I do want to ra- I, I want to bring this up in the last you know five minutes or so that we have together. Is what are you telling your clients from cap step cap? Uh, uh, Capstack perspective, sorry, I'm kind of losing my words here. Uh, what are you telling your clients? Uh, how are you advising them to manage money? How? What are you guys doing, right? So when, when people are listening uh, to this pod and they want to come to you, what are some things that that's important for you to get out in the market? So, uh, look, I would say, you know, um, we manage a, a debt fund. And so where we see a lot, like it's a good vantage point for what we're doing. Um, you know, and, and the stuff we're touching is, you know, the, the opportunistic direct lending opportunities, you know, so we're filling the void where traditional lenders may be a bit skittish, uh, right now. And, and we're also buying distressed opportunities, um, which I, that's my background. And frankly, we love, so, you know, I, I, I am, my, my view has simply been that we're going to make loans on a deal by deal basis uh, where we like 
the story, the asset, our last dollar risk in a deal. Um, and we feel like we can get a return that is reflective of where the markets are, meaning, you know, my yield has to be significantly higher than um, where rates are, certainly. But also, you know, look, I have investors that don't necessarily just invest in real estate or just invest in real estate debt with us, but they're investing in the public markets, right? So mm-hmm. you have to look over and say, okay, what are the public markets doing? What are, you know, whether it be fixed income or equities, and I know like equities are getting hammered, but fixed income yields are a very measurable benchmark, right? So we look at that and say, okay, if we're going to go into a deal, like we have to offer something compelling, you know, so that's generally where we're starting, you know, and then we have to just, you know, like the story, like the deal. And that's really the room you have when you're looking at like these, like, private real estate opportunities that you can jump in on. And on a distressed basis, you know, a lot of uh, investors that we deal with, you know, everyone likes distress. It's sexy. You know, people just love the idea of getting a deal. Um, You know, I always say you don't buy price, you buy value. Um, You know, we've paid par on defaulted deals in that, um, you know, using that lens, you know, everyone wants to just get a discount for the sake of it. I do believe yeah. that you'll start to see that over the next few quarters because, you know, if you go back to what I was saying where you're going to have borrowers um, running into problems on refinancing loans that are coming due, right? On the one side of that trade, you have a borrower problem. You know, on the other side is the lender counterparty to that relationship who also now has a problem because they want to get repaid and get out of the deal, right? So to that end, you know, I have been very, very slow moving, uh, even though deals, you know, and, and as an opportunist, you know, and, and trying to make good, good investments and good yields, you know, we're starting to see things that we haven't been able to see in, in you know, the last few years. I, I feel like we're not going to lose out we're, we're taking our time. I'm definitely in a little more of a wait and see camp, you know, as deals come our way, if we like them and we can make the deal happen, we'll do them, but we're not jumping in, um, out of an urgency that if this one gets, gets away, we're, we're like left without any other opportunities. Um, I think, you know, there's going to be a window of time, you know, and it's probably a near term one, not a long term one necessarily, where I think, you know, you can just kind of take your time, be selective, make smart decisions. And I would also just add, and this is something that I counsel on a regular basis, you know, when we're bringing new investors into our fund and just in general, when I talk to people that directly invest, think about your runway. Think about your runway, right? If, if you're being short term, you know, just think about the kind of market environment you may come out on the other side of whatever trade you're doing in the short term and whether it's going to be conducive to what you think your exit's going to be, right? If it's longer term, you know, that's a different analysis. So, you know, those are the considerations, you know, that especially, particularly, again, because real estate's not a public equities. Like, you just can't, you can't jump in and out of that. Right. So you really yeah. got to think about like, okay, when am I getting off this ride? 
Well, look, uh, we have, well, we have to wrap. We need to have you back on a third time. But how do people find you for those who haven't seen you uh, before? How do people learn more about Capstack? And yeah, how, how do people turn to you? Um, I'm, I'm active on, on LinkedIn, so you can always find me there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's probably the best way to go. Um, I'm, I'm most reachable and, uh, you know, most active on that platform. Awesome. We'll, we'll put a link down below. Thanks again. I'm going to have to have you start managing. I'm just start investing in your, in your company. So <laughs> I start managing that. my real estate investment. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, look, uh, thanks for coming on again. Um, really happy to to have you i've i've learned a lot i mean just thinking about the price action we should we should maybe revisit this you know it's october now uh maybe january february and see where the market is going hopefully it's after a pause or a pivot or at least a pause and and there's gonna be that overhang that we talked about i know and uh, it'll be interesting to see because real estate is usually the last piece to really turn over when we're going from economic cycle to economic cycle and so it's going to be quite interesting to see the fallout that happens. And depending on the kind of recession that we're going to be officially in next year, you know, that everybody's now forecasting and now we're not in recession, but next year for sure. It might be, it might be quite an interesting market environment for sure. I think so. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me again. <laughs>